All rise in the courtroom and to those listening on stream for the dishonorable badger is entering the scene. Apparently doing this as a day job simply was not enough. So let your jaws drop to the floor cause we can't make this stuff up. Welcome back to the legal fun house. We put the fun in dysfunctional. It's crazy in the legal fun house but weirdly educational. But every single one is remarkably true. to law school and is more than qualified to talk about the strangest cases from the strangest people alive and the friend that he brought along barely past eighth grade whose legal experience lies within parking in the fire lane welcome back to the legal fun house we're just as confused as you it's finally time for the legal fun house and without further ado Every single one is remarkably true. It's Boozy's Legal Funhouse. It's Boozy's Legal Funhouse. It's Boozy's Legal Funhouse. It's Boozy's Legal Funhouse. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Boozy's Legal Funhouse, episode 28, Distress of the Dead. I burped in the middle of it, but we are, for the first time ever, for the first time fucking ever, I am forced to do a take two tonight because shit got out of hand. So, I, I, fuck it. Fuck it. There's a burp in the middle of the intro. That's how it is. Fucking deal with it. I am your host, the Boozy Badger, Boozy Barrister. With me tonight, as always, is my co-host and certified legal layman, Alkali. Hello, everyone. And I would all like you to think for a moment that burping during the intro did not cause another take. So what could have happened? Join the Patreon and get the -the (laughs) behind-the-scenes moments. You know what? Just for this one, I I will do that. I will because my recording software is fucking up. The the video software is fuck. Everything's fucking up. So for I this, I might one, have been a minute or two late. Just one or two minutes. You were ten minutes. Ten minutes late. You were ten minutes late. Just setting up. You you should have seen the look on Zanny's face when I jumped off the couch and went, "Oh shit! I'm streaming with Boozy." When? Ten now. minutes ago. Yeah, oh, now. he's going to kill you. <laughs> In case you are new to the show, there is a legal part of it. But uh, as I say, this is recorded semi-live in front of an audience on twitch.tv slash boozybadger. And uh, I don't like editing. So there, there is no editing. Like, if it goes on the fucking audio, it stays the fuck in at this point. Uh, because I just download the video of this cut the audio, like take out a couple small things and put it the fuck up there. That's how it works. We don't believe in take, well, no, we didn't believe in take two. Now we don't believe in take three. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good. We always get one. We get a mulligan. Yes. So before we continue tonight with Distress of the Dead, a conversation of emotional distress damages and corpses. 
I corpses? have corpses. Of corpse, we're talking about. Of that. corpse. Of corpse. Uh, I have to do our standard disclaimer. Boozy's Legal Funhouse is an informational, educational, and hopefully entertaining podcast. It is not in any way, shape, or form legal advice. I am an attorney. I am not your attorney. The way I become your attorney would be you come into my office. You tell me your problem. I agree to represent you. You sign an engagement letter and pay a retainer of my choosing. Do not just PayPal me a fucking dollar. And then I'm representing you. None of that has happened and none of that can happen because I don't take private clients. Please do not say a fat man on the internet told me this. It will not go over well in court. That said, it is time once again to do something I do at the beginning of all of these, and that is to read off the names of our Patreon supporters over at patreon.com slash lawyers and liquor as Alkali mentioned a moment ago. So a special thank you to Tezcat Magic Jag, Wayland DeRoche, Beaten, Dose of the Trash Panda, Mama T, Uncle Kage, Evelyn Klein, Lisa Lupe, Lufus the Raccoon, Netherlinks, Pandemonium, Petroff Neutrino, Buddy, Good Boy, CC Otter, Chroma Hydra, David Hunter, Dragor, Eddie the Weather Fox, Flat Facts, Ghost Goat, Grayshane Gallinger, Head Fox and Jason Knight, John Michael Carden, Julie Esslinger, Jess James Lack, Mark Whipple, Michael Blocker, Nikolai, Otto Poom, Red Fox, Romeo Rabbis, Scuba Fox, Sarah Tentacel, The Dragon Show, Tiny Voices, William Kennard, and Ziggy, if you want to be one of those wonderful people, you can do that over at patreon.com slash lawyers and liquor subscribers at all level get a week early access to every show before it goes live on your favorite podcasting service and five dollar and above level subscribers get actually the video archive of what the fuck we're doing right now that's it is time alkali it's time for legal news oh i love the legal news how are you going to shatter my psyche today Well, I mean, like, I'm not really going to because we've got a lot of cases to cover now. We don't just have one case. We have several cases that I want to cover with you. So there's really only one legal news story. Okay, well, that's good. I'm sure this is a very happy and jaunty affair, correct? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Uh, You know, a a Florida guy uh, posed as general counsel... Uh, and a senior executive at a Manhattan law firm uh, to direct internal investigations for people that uh, were going to be looking at ties between the firm and who do you think? Oh, God. Mafia? Jeffrey Epstein! You know, you know, you had one story. You had one story, and you're going with Epstein. Oh, joy of joys. The U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York announced last week that Jonathan Gertler, a 60-year-old man from where else? Orlando, Florida, home of fraud and Mickey Mouse, allegedly posed as a partner of an international law firm uh, while speaking to... Who do you think he was speaking to? The Florida law firm? I'm going to go with the Gators. No, no. Do you think he was speaking to members of the press? Oh God. Maybe he was maybe he was just on the internet forum impersonating uh that that per impersonating a, a senior member, a partner of an international law firm. Say so tell me this is at the trial somehow. Almost because he was talking to federal agents. Oh, that prank went too far. 
He impersonated, this is an exact quote from the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, Jonathan Gertler, impersonated some of the most prominent figures in finance and law to defraud companies of over $1 million and convince federal investigators to stop their investigation into his scheme. Okay, I kind of want to applaud the bastard. That's impressive. What the fuck? Like that he, takes iron brass balls, both elements, not elements. Like he literally went in and, and told people, hey, give me uh, $200,000 to fund an internal investigation to Jeffrey Epstein. Got the money, turned around, impersonated the founder of another investigation firm and told that CEO to give him $865,000 for the investigate for a fake investigation into connections between the firm and Epstein. Then when he found out federal agents were looking into the the potential fraud, he called the federal agent. He called the FBI on the phone said yeah, I'm a partner in an international law firm, and we've chosen not to report the fraud because it was made whole, meaning that the fraudster paid it back. He spoke to, he called the FBI, impersonated a lawyer representing the firms he had defrauded, and said, "Yeah, that guy paid us back. Don't look into it anymore." I need to know how far did that lie get him. Did he get off the phone before he was arrested, or did he start to get away with this? Also, did he sell them a bridge when he was done? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. I'm thinking it probably made it worse, because a couple days later, he must have had second thoughts, and he very confidently called the FBI back. Oh, and, that, that show, he's got spunk. And said, quote, Our position is that uh, the law states that, um, you know, if the money was paid back prior to uh, the crime being uh, discovered, uh, it's not a crime. Way too many uhs and ums for that to be a legit international law partner. Oh, my God. (sighs) No, it might endure you to a jury. I could see that being my shtick as a lawyer. Um, he, uh, oh, God, he, he didn't kill that guy. Uh, oh, God, so much blood. Uh, like, and the best part of this is, like, you hear these stories from Florida. It's like, Florida man wrestles alligator. Florida man robs Burger King with alligator. Florida man on bath salts marries alligator. There's always an alligator in there. Always. Yeah, like, obviously. Like, it's just there in every story. It's not, they're not actually reporting the crime. They're just following that one alligator because it's definitely the same fucking alligator that just seeks out the craziest motherfuckers in Florida. Um, Hammer whore that alligator. And, and in the middle of those stories is Florida man defrauds major investment companies of over a million dollars and with balls of brass tries to convince the FBI not to investigate him. I love this. I love. Uh, uh, you know what? Put that man in rich man's prison. They'll <laughs> yeah. all get along. Put, he actually earned it. Put him in the prison with the tennis court. Put him in that yeah. one. Put him in the nice prison. Then he can defraud all the people in there. This is going great. Look, I'm solving legal problems right now. Aren't you glad? So. 
I'm I'm solving the issue. <laughs> That's right. The issue that no one cared about. So does that story in addition to amusing, does that story at all outrage you? I mean, yeah, a little bit. Why did he call the second time? You gotta ride the lie, man. The weave falls apart if you tug at it too much. <laughs> like you're coming up with way too much detail here. You're coming up with way you're creating like it does like in the article it says like the second time he called the FBI he's like, uh, in consultation with our partners and our associates, uh, some of whom used to work for the US attorney's office. And I'm like, Oh, you're going way too much into detail. That's like that's like if you're like, Where were you? I was at the store with Bob. Oh, okay. Where were you? I was at the store with Bob and we bought some Laffy Taffy and then Bob opened the Laffy Taffy and there was a spider in it. So we drove back to that's the moment you got you got too much detail. You got to nobody goes into that much fucking detail. You got way too much detail. Wes Anderson would be a horrible person to have to question. Yes, the room was filled with pastels, three flower pots placed precariously on top of two stands, no more than one inch thick, the third foot, and it goes on. So, I, I had told you a little while back uh, about the different areas of law. You know, there's there's real estate law, there, you know, property, there's family law, uh, there's contract right. law, and, and I told you about torts, which are, are the personal injury cases, right? Like, right. you've done a harm to someone that is a tort, all right? Okay. So, I need you to listen carefully to the words that are about to come out of my mouth. All right. The tort of outrage... The tort of outrage. The tort of outrage. The, no. No. It is, this it is, is not a thing. It is not a pastry that makes you angry. Uh, the, most torts are. No, this is not a thing. It is, it is a thing, and it's something that you probably know by a completely different name. What's, what do I know it has? Intentional infliction of emotional distress. Oh, God. The tort of outrage is simply another term for intentional infliction of emotional distress. A lawsuit where somebody has intentionally called you, caused you emotional distress to such a degree that it forms its own basis of action, that you can be compensated for the, for the distress that it has called, hence tort of Outrage. It is outrageous. You have been outraged. Anybody would be outraged. And normally, I use the cases to illustrate the elements. But tonight, because we have so many cases, I'm just going to give you the fucking elements. Because I want you to fit them in as we go along. Oh, God. All right, all right. There are... Four elements. This is the most depressing puzzle I have ever done. Keep going. There are four elements to the tort of outrage. One is intentional or reckless conduct. Okay. Two, that is extreme and outrageous. Three, which causes distress in the plaintiff. And four, and that distress causes the plaintiff to suffer severe emotional distress as a result. Now, they need all four of these. All four. One of those? All four. You, you got to have all four. all four. All four elements. 
Okay? Oh, God. Now, keep that in mind. I'm not going to explain literally any of this. <laughs> okay. Like, like, I'm giving you the elements. I'm not going to explain what they fucking mean. Right okay. Now. Keep that in mind as we go in to today's cases. And as I accidentally close out something that I should not have closed out. <laughs> Undo. Undo. All right. So our first case today, once I find my goddamn... Oh, my God. This is horrible. No, give it, give, give it back to me. <laughs> once again, doing it live. <laughs> Did the cat take the computer again? God, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> Our first case today is we are going back to 1868 in Massachusetts. This is the case of Meager versus Driscoll. Your citation, as always, Meager v. Driscoll, 99, Mass, 281, 1868. Let me give you the background. Let's, let's lay down the facts here. In 1863, December of 1863, Mr. Meager went to a cemetery, Thomas Meager, in his town of Brookline, Massachusetts. It was Holy Hood Cemetery. And he selected a burial plot. He bought this burial plot because it was near where his father had been buried. Okay? Okay. Now, at the time, the guy running the cemetery, Mr. Driscoll, James Driscoll, says, give me five bucks. You know, get, give me the down payment. Save your spot. All right? So he pays over the five dollars, right? and that's all he's required to pay at that time. Shortly afterwards, all right, his kid dies. Now, he has a cemetery plot he's put a down payment on, and his child has died. So, he says, bury my son in my cemetery plot. Okay. Good loving father. Problem is, is he he may have still owed money on the plot. How much do you think he owed? Well, he's already paid that $5, and this was, you said, 1860? 1863. So, uh, permanent, I think that used to last for 100 years back then. Let's go with 100 bucks. So he owes 95 bucks. $30. $30. $30 total owes 25 after the $5 down payment. Right. Okay, owes 25 bucks. Now, when this case goes to court, all right, the defendant, the guy who runs the cemetery, Driscoll, gets on the stand and testifies, oh, he was supposed to pay that in 30 days. Mr. Meager says, no, 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 no. You didn't really give me a time frame to pay it. All right? Two years later, February 1865. Okay. Meager's wife goes to the cemetery, all right, at his direction, goes to Driscoll's house and pays $25 to Driscoll's son. All right? His son, at that point, because... Driscoll himself is sick, is acting as the caretaker of the cemetery. And he writes out a deed that says, uh, and it puts it on the records, that uh, in the September prior to that, or that uh, that she owned the, the property, okay? 
Okay. So this is February 1865. September 1865. Good old Jim Driscoll is healthy, hearty, and back at work. He is running the cemetery again. He sees this grave there. And apparently either didn't check the books, didn't talk to his son, or is just an asshole and goes, I think I'm still owed $25 on that. What do you believe he does? I believe that he took it through the proper authority, sent a letter, and asked for payment. But I think he dug up the goddamn body. He dug up the goddamn body. He, he went in, dug up the child's body, took it to oh. what he was what he called as a charity lot, then buried it in a grave with two other bodies. Oh, a party. Oh, God, why? Okay. That's uh, horrible. Um, so, how long before they found out? Um, well, it, it doesn't really say, quite honestly. Like, it doesn't say how they found out. It doesn't say when they found out. Just that they found out. Because Driscoll, who didn't think that the plot had been paid off, uh, sent letters to Meager saying, uh, yeah, we're going to sell the lot you buried your son in. Oh, my God. If you don't pay me. Uh, which he then did, dug up the body and buried it in the charity grave with two other people. Uh, and some witnesses referred to that charity grave as being in a wet and marshy ground. Oh, God, no, why? So let, let's just go over this real quick, all right? Meager pays the $5 down payment. His child dies. He buries his child there about a year and a half, two years later. He sends his wife around. They pay off the other 25 bucks. Driscoll's sick, doesn't know about it, sends out collection notices to Meager. Uh, doesn't get a response, likely because Meager's like, I already fucking paid it. Uh, <laughs> Driscoll then digs up his child's body and throws it in a swamp with the other fucking bodies. Yeah, no, that sounds like a normal reaction to everyday work life. Oh, God. All right. Me, Driscoll comes back, and he has two defenses. Well, okay. three defenses, really, but two that we're not really going to talk about. Number one, eh, this isn't a real cemetery. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, <laughs> one of his defenses is, I never got permission from the town to open a cemetery here, so I can't validly sell grave plots, so his piece of paper means nothing. That's the great defense ever! Oh no, you can't get me for this wrongdoing! I've broken so many laws! This one did nothing! Right? He's like the Donald Trump of cemeteries. He's sitting here like, no, 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 no! You see, I was acting illegally when I started burying people here. Don't worry about me digging up the kid. I didn't sign the proper paperwork. You got me there. Like the you got me there. Don't worry about the child. Yeah, the zoning board says, Nene. <laughs> I couldn't even done the things I did. Don't you understand? 
the uh, the idea behind that, by the way, goes back to a contract principle, and it is a contract for something illegal is void ab initio, uh, void at the beginning. So basically what his defense is, is I could not have agreed to sell him a cemetery plot because I legally could not sell cemetery plots here. And the proper defense to that defense isn't, but you did sell him a cemetery plot without him knowing because, you know, you own a graveyard. Hold on. What law is he? The Holy shit. He has so many corpses on his property, which is apparently not a graveyard. Yeah, I mean, like the judge, by the way, was like, "Yeah, no, motherfucker, <laughs> like, like, no, you're running a goddamn graveyard. We're not, we're not doing that. <laughs> we're giving you the property in perpetuity. By the way, you owe us a lot of back taxes, probably more than five dollars." The second defense he raised was, uh, you know, uh, the the deal was he had to pay me in full uh, within thirty days. He didn't pay me in full within 30 days. Therefore, he had no right to the plot. Uh, But that one's countered by him saying, so now that's a he said, she said. Right. And the the judge did not go for, you know, uh, Yeedy McCorpsey there. Uh, being the, yeah. being being the more credible, like Yee McCorpsey, the real estate fraud baron of the cemeteries of Massachusetts, being <laughs> being the credible party. Oh God! So what was all his right. third defense when this all went to to the court? All right, uh, Meager had said, by the way. I should be entitled to damages for the trauma that has been caused to my family by you digging up my child and throwing them in the swamp. Yeah. The defense to that was you can't get that. The most you can get is the value of the actual damage done to the property as a result of me going in there and digging up the plot that you had access to. Oh. So this goes to the jury. And the jury awards damages based on trespass to property. Now, trespass to property is not just trespass to real estate. Trespass to property is a uh, is a legal tort that means somebody has interfered with your right to a piece of property. If I walk in your house, take your TV, and keep it away from you for a period of time, all right? Okay. I have trespassed upon your chattel, which is a fancy legal word for property that's not real estate. All right. Okay. And you could be entitled. To the monetary value that uh, that you would have had in that TV for that time period. Okay. All right. So <clears throat> that's part of this. Now his defense is, I only trespassed on the real estate, though. When it's trespassed to property, it's only a trespass on the real estate. You get no money for me fucking with the dead body. And you get no money for any emotional damage. Okay. Why do you think he made that argument? 
because the emotional damage would have done this thing that you were talking about earlier, the tort of uh, obscenity. Outrage. Outrage. Nailed it. But it's a bit more of that. I will tell you, at this point in time, all right, the tort of outrage was not a thing. Okay. The tort of outrage, the tort of intentional infliction of emotional distress really only came about in like the 1960s or so as a separate cause of action. It was, it's not, you know, you did something to my thing, so I should get extra damages. It is its own grounds for damages, separate and apart from whatever the other wrongful act that caused the outrage was. Gotcha, okay. So at this time, they wouldn't do that, because what the jury did was the jury said, okay, we're going to award damages for the trespass to the real estate, and as part of this, we're going to say it's an aggravating circumstance and that part of those damages can be considered the mental anguish you have suffered. Okay. Instead of, instead of just the money for the trespass to real estate, which would be next to nothing, we're going to give you some more damages because we think it was particularly egregious. Okay. Right? So what he is appealing here, what, what he brought up, what he being Driscoll is bringing up is... Wait a second. You can't give me give any damages that are all related to the boy's body or the mental anguish. You can only give him damages relating to me digging up the land. Interfering oh, with his shit. ownership of the land. Why do you think Driscoll thought that was a good legal argument? Sounds like it would, uh, from what you're saying, it wouldn't have cost him any money. Right. But why do you think it was a good legal argument? Not a good fucking logical argument. The logic, the reason he thought it was a good logical argument is the same reason this motherfucker was like, yeah, but he didn't own the land because I was doing everything illegally. Fair enough. So does this mean if they take that argument that they can't bring up the corpse in court and totally well, turn they, the jury? They can bring up, they can bring up the corpse in court. But if the jury awards damages based on the corpse, can the jury jury's verdict be cut off? Can the court can an appeals court come back and say, you shouldn't have awarded any damages based on the body? Because this is purely a real estate issue. Holy shit. So yeah, he, oh my god. It goes back to, believe it or not, the church. What? Prior to our current legal system. Uh, which is devolved from the English common law. There were two court systems. There was the civil court system, what we think of now when we say courts, and then there was the ecclesiastical court, and that was a court of the church. Come on. Certain matters were solely within the purview of the court of the church. There was no such thing as a civil marriage. There was a marriage, which was an ecclesiastical matter. Divorces went through the ecclesiastical courts. Probate went through ecclesiastical courts. And anything dealing with the dead. Uh, Okay, okay. Because bodies did not give a property interest to anyone. Nobody could own a dead body. Nobody had any property right in a dead body. The only people who had a property right in a dead body whatsoever were 
Well, I'm going to assume the the caretakers of the cemetery. The church. Oh, so they just had full control over corpses. The actual quote from Justice Foster on this, after going through it and saying, the family, the the heirs, the next of kin, they have a property interest in the monuments. They have a property interest in the land they're buried on. If they they have the freehold, if they have the, the estate, if they own it. They have a property interest in the clothes the dead body is wearing, in the jewelry that they're buried with, in the shroud that is wrapped around them. They have no property interest in the body. Wild! The body is known now, we say, in custodia legis. It is in the custody of the law. Then, the body would have been solely in the custody of the church. So Driscoll's argument was, I can't be liable for any damage to the body itself to him because he has no property interest in that body. So you can't base any of the damages off of anything that happened to the body. So in this kind of case where it, it collides property and the body, there was no way to get the church to come in to send in some of the priests. Well, that's the thing. Ecclesiastical courts hadn't been around for a long time by then. So at that point... Oh, so you it, can just do whatever right, with bodies. It, 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 it kind of went to, to what I was talking about earlier, in custodia legis, in the custody of the court. Right. That's why if you're disinterring a body... You typically have to get permission from a court to disinter a body because the court has purview over that. However, the court in this case came back, looked at that and said, no, fuck you. (laughs) Fuck fuck, fuck you. You know what? We, We don't disagree with your position. We don't disagree with your position that we can't give him emotional damages based off of what happened to the body. We certainly can say, you're digging up the grave of his son, which he had the freehold interest in, was an aggravating factor, and we can base damages off of the level of aggravation. Yay! Now, this is important, though. It's important because what the court did there was give emotional distress damages without giving them. It didn't recognize mental anguish. It didn't recognize emotional distress. What it said is this is an aggravating factor under the real estate claim, under the trespass to real estate claim. So we're going to let them award additional damages, like punitive damages, based on that. Oh, and that way they weren't setting uh, precedents. Is that why they did it like that? Well, they weren't. It's not more that they weren't setting precedent. But they weren't doing away with any precedent. Okay. Okay. Understood. That's interesting. So, I'm just glad they did that. Good for them. So that that's a wonderful example of we don't recognize emotional damages then. We don't. We're not recognizing emotional damages. We are just aggravating the damage. We are finding a condition where the damages for the trespass to the real estate can be increased and the jury can take into consideration the severity of the trespass 
in giving uh, compensatory damages or punitive damages. Amazing. So we go from 1868 Massachusetts to 1891 Minnesota. Doesn't sound like much of a leap. Larson v. Chase, 47 Minnesota 307 from the Minnesota Supreme Court in 1891. This case is a little different. Okay. All right. It's a little. Two corpses. No, no. There's no grave. That does not quell any of my fears. The fa- there was a swamp in the last one. <laughs> well, let me let me just. I'll read. The, we have these things called head notes. On some cases, they're kind of like, uh, what what is what is being addressed in this case? Okay. All right. Okay. So here's the first head note. It's telling you kind of like these are these are the legal issues. Right to possession of dead body by surviving husband or wife next of kin. Oh. All right. The second head note is same. So right to possession of body, action to protect right, damages for mutilation. Okay. Okay, was he protecting the corpse and mutilated somebody else? Or to protect the corpse, did he mutilate it? We don't know. (laughs) Damn it. The facts of this case are really, really simple. Uh, Larson's husband dies. All right? Uh, And... Under law, the law had evolved quite a bit. And at that point, uh, it's important to understand, there is what we call kind of a quasi-property right. It's not really a property right, but it's a quasi-property right regarding a dead body. And it is the right of the next of kin, of the husband, the wife, the next of kin, the legal next of kin, to control the disposition of the final remains. Okay? Nobody can interfere with that. Okay. That that's where you get when you get claims relating to dead bodies. It's not that they're interfering with the body; it's that they're interfering with the right of the person bringing the claim to control the disposition of the dead body. Okay. All right. <clears throat> so she, this lady's husband, dies, goes to Chase's mortuary, and uh, the exact quote here is. Um, where it was mutilated. Where it was mutilated. Yeah. At the mortuary. Yeah, like it doesn't go into any detail as to, as to what the mutilation did in these circumstances. Just it was mutilated. If I had to guess, because it sounds like, but if I had to guess, my assumption. your guess. My assumption would be like the body got there and the undertaker did an autopsy or dissected the corpse or something like that. Like, uh, Oh, yours sounds way more reasonable than mine. Look, the kids choir was about to put on an episode of Sweeney Todd and the authenticity of 1890s Minnesota Children's Theater is really something to behold. I... But, uh, <laughs> The Kitchen Children's Theater performance of Sweeney Todd. What's he fucking doing? Cutting people's, like, throats with a with a candy cane? And the, 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 you gotta make the pies. You gotta make the pies. Everyone in the audience got a pie. It was a beautiful night. Oh, so the wife obviously is upset with this. Okay. 
So yeah, she didn't get a pie because the Undertaker did not have any direction from her, obviously to to dissect his body. Okay. Uh, so her first claim is, "You have interfered with my right to control the uh, the preservation, preparation, and burial of my husband. You you've stepped in. You've taken away my legal right to the custody of his uh, of his body." Okay. Right. Her second claim is, by the way, really fucking traumatized me that you sliced and diced my husband uh, <laughs> so, without talking to me. Like, you know, do you think you're that Vic guy and this is a slap chop? Is he an onion? Or are you making him into tiny pieces? I- I'm not too fucking happy about this. So I feel that I should get damages for my pain and suffering, for my mental anguish, for the distress that you have called me, caused me. I'm on her side. We got this. Okay. Now, first of all, what do you think the court here said about the second part, the the mental anguish, the mental suffering? 1890, and you already explained it to me in the last case that you can't have mental suffering with a corpse. Well, Minnesota kind of went differently. Really? Yeah. This is a happy story. The, the Minnesota court states, and this is a quote, it is elementary that the law as a general rule only gives compensation for actual injury. Yet whenever a breach of a contract or an invasion of a legal right is established, the law infers some damage. And if no evidence is given of any particular amount of loss, it declares the right by awarding nominal damages. Right, nominal damages being some amount of damages, so some small amount, something to recognize that that is wrong. And that's okay. what we saw in Meager v. Driscoll at first. You know, the trespass Which, was By that. the way, your chat looked it up. Uh, Meager was awarded $837.50. That sounds about right for, you know, like what, what is that in, in real money, not old-timey 1868 money? Um <laughs> Well, I'm just putting that to the cost of a grave being $30. So I'm going to say nice. So here the court said, yeah, there's been a lot of back and forth on whether mental anguish can ever form the basis for damages absent a a monetary harm. Because the issue here really is she didn't suffer any monetary loss from her husband's body being cut up. So the, right. court, so the court, what they're getting at is, at most, maybe she's entitled to nominal damage. You know, here's a dollar. Fuck off. Uh, you know, you didn't really lose anything by this. It's an invasion right. of the right. We're going to assess some nominal amount to recognize your right has been invaded. But she's saying kind of the same thing Meager did, which is the mental anguish that I have, while not countable in money, can be a grounds for you to award me money, more money, for the violation of this right. Okay. Okay. So Minnesota here goes in. They're like, courts have done it in the past. They, they certainly have. They, they've gone in uh, and said, we're going to, uh, to give you money by aggravating and it's punitive and things like that. And Minnesota came back and said, no, you know what? Fuck that. Uh, we're not going to make them do punitives. We're going to say that mental anguish, where another right has been invaded, can be a separate ground of damages. Not just punitive damages, but we can we can compensate for that. Okay. 
And they're the first ones to really do this. Right. And what they're kind of getting at when they say this is, likewise, we're going to put some um, some limits. And remember all those elements I gave you at the beginning? Yeah. Okay. One of the limits is, when this person intentionally acts in a manner that violates a legal right... And that violation is the direct and proximate cause of mental anguish. That mental anguish becomes a separate measure of damages for the legal right that has been violated. Outside of just how much money did it cost them. What's that sound like based on the four factors I gave you at the beginning? That sounds like the first one that you mentioned to me. Right. The, the, I'm Intent- not going to be able to repeat Intentional now, infliction of emotional distress. That's two of the elements right there. An intentional act that causes mental anguish. And this is the start of that. This is, this is, right. This is kind of the start of that right there. Oh, that's really cool, actually. Uh, so it goes out. She actually gets awarded money based on that. Okay. And, Good on her. And do you know what they cited to support that uh, that decision? What they cited? What like they cited. What, what they, what's quickest they cited to say, you know what? We think that that's a good thing. We think you can do that. Oh, come on. Did they actually cite Meager? Meager V. Driscoll, motherfucker. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> I love it. They cite Meager V. Driscoll. Uh, <clears throat> for that, it, that uh, as they say, it would be a reproach to the law if a plaintiff's right to recover from mental language resulting from mutilation or other disturbance of the remains of his dead should be made to depend on whether, in committing the act, the defendant also committed a technical trespass. I'm more impressed they were able to find that case without the use of Google. Unless their intern's name was Google and there's a bunch of stuff I'm not sure of. So that's 1891 in <laughs> Minnesota. All right? This is going good. I like where this is going. You like where it's going? I do. Oh, God. I like how you said that. You like what you Well, let's go to uh, to New York in 1933. Oh. All right. This oh. is Goskowski v. the Roman Catholic Church of Sacred Hearts of Jesus and Mary. 262 New York 320 from the Court of Appeals of the State of New York in 1933. Oh, boy. All right. Mr. Kutsowski lives out on an island. And? A long island. Okay. He is, as his name would suggest, uh, Irish. Uh You know, the the Kutsowski's famous, famous family from Cork County. Uh, he's Polish. He's Polish. You're from Chicago. You heard the name and you're like, you're probably pronouncing it wrong. And I know 20 people with that name. I didn't want to correct you. Okay. He's Polish. He's married to an Irish woman. They have four children. His Irish wife is an Irish Catholic. She goes to this Catholic church. Uh, she's an active member of it. She's there. She dies. Okay. After her death, her husband, Anthony Kosowski, goes out there. He buys a lot in the cemetery of the church from Father Colleen, who's the parish priest. He buries his wife there, 
all the Catholic funeral rites are are followed out. Uh, it is July fifteenth, nineteen. 31 father harrigan gives a lovely lovely mass because father kareen is out of Colleen is out of town visiting people about three weeks later anthony tony we're just gonna say tony from now and tony takes his kids and he says let's all go to mama's grave and say a prayer beside her grave together it will it will help us gain closure all right they get there and something's off Oh, God, the swamp is back. What happened? Well, they get there and they see that all the pretty flowers from her funeral are not on her grave. Instead, they're on another grave. Mm. Why, do you, <laughs> why do you think they're on the other grave? Because capitalism exists, so they reuse the flowers for the next funeral. Because Father Colleen had dug her up and moved her to a cheaper plot to resell the one that Tony Katsowski bought. My story was happier somehow. So Tony goes to see the good father about this. (laughs) I imagine he's rather upset and this man of the cloth reacts to it in the way the Catholic Church is famous for reacting to criticism with compassion and understanding and no, actually what he says is you Polish people nothing good ever comes after the words you blank people you Polish people should be glad to bury any old way any place is good enough for Poles you have no cemetery of your own if you don't like the place which is good enough for her and you you can go somewhere else and buy a plot holy shit Tony Kosowski goes to get a fucking lawyer <laughs> oh, good on him. Like the 30s, just, just from this case and other things, 30s were not a good time period for the Polish people. Just, just in general. Yeah. The lawyer oh, sends fuck. a letter to Father Colleen demanding the reburial of his client's wife back in the right lot. And Father Colleen writes back to the attorney in what is described as, quote, a defiant manner. A defiant? More racism, got it, all right. Stating that Kosowski had no cause to be dissatisfied with the treatment he had received. Oh, oh, he lives in his own little Catholic world over there, huh? So, this goes to trial. And Kosowski, obviously, they got the breach of contact. Obviously, Kosowski saying mental suffering and anguish. They drug, dug up his fucking wife, right? Yeah. Uh, the jury gives Kosowski $2,931. The appellate division says he only gets a thousand. The so <laughs> the after they reduce it, Father Colleen and the Catholic Church uh, because obviously the Catholic Church is just historically and traditionally so poor. 
They oh, ha- they. However, would the Catholic Church pay a one thousand dollar judgment? Right. They say no, no. You should have given a new trial, not just re- not just reduce the damages, because because we'll admit that Mr. Kosowski could have gotten damages for mental suffering and anguish. We'll admit that his compensation can include that. What we won't admit is that punitive damages should have been allowed because our acts were willful, malicious, and wanton. And that if that's right, if they shouldn't have allowed punitive damages, if our acts were willful, malicious, and wanton, then just reducing the award doesn't cure it. We need a brand new trial. Oh, my God. So we got to look up. It looks like this is $18,433. That is the $1,000. Uh, oh, my God. All now, right. Now Did he, they get a new trial? Well, no. But here's, here's the right. important part to take from that. Did you notice what the Catholic Church didn't try to say? We've seen it in two cases now where a defendant has tried to say this. Did you notice what the Catholic Church didn't try to say? Well, they weren't going after the, the pain and suffering clause. Right. They, they were saying, we'll admit that you can base damages on mental suffering and anguish alone. And that does, oh, no, 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 that still doesn't exist now, that, that those rules that you gave this, me. But this is how it's getting there. Because now they're saying the mental suffering and anguish can be a source of damages. All right. And you know what case they decided to do that? Was it the original one? Mary fucking Driscoll. I love it. (laughs) They didn't need Google. Fuck it. The idea here was punitive damages. A few episodes ago, I told you what punitive damages are. Do you remember? Uh, yeah, for the most part. What are they? Punitive damages are the ones that are uh, uh, based off of your not not so much property, but but it can't be cited in the other in the ah screw you. Punitive damages are the damages that are meant to punish. Oh, I was off anyway. Good, I was just wrong. <laughs> These punitive damages are intended to be damages like like yo know, to. A, punish the goddamn conduct. That's what punitive means. A punitive measure is a punishment measure. Okay. And they're justified when either the conduct is so bad that the general damages aren't enough. You got to give additional fucking damages on it. And to deter others from doing the same thing. Like, you know, fuck, they they fucking cited Father Colleen too grand and punitives for... For digging up that Irish woman with the Polish husband, we better not do that. We better we don't do that. Better okay, stick. All right. Better stick to desecrating the the graves of non-white people from now on. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but but it is the phrase because the court said the punitives could be justified by willful and malicious and wanton. What does that sound like? The racism that that asshole was spouting a few minutes ago. 
intentional and outrageous. Oh, that's rule number three. That's rules number one and three. So we're starting to see it in. Now they're saying, okay, not only can we use the mental anguish that results as a measure of damages, but we can give additional damages if them causing that anguish was willful and wanton and malicious, if it was intentional and outrageous. I love it. I love it. Tell me they went back up to the two grand. <laughs> that's actually what the court says, because the Catholic Church is like, well, you know, they, they can't find that. The verdict's too excessive. And the court's like, okay, you dug up a woman's body, moved it to another grave, and then told her husband, you Polish people should be happy with what you get. Yay! The law works! So we're going to say that that, um, that that's... That's okay. We'll let them give damages based on that. However, the court comes back because kind of the, the whole thing on that was it's mental anguish, right? Right. Okay. Well, the court comes back and they want to say mm, the punitives are allowed, but the punitives are allowed because of what? Because we're not giving you damages for wounded feelings. Really? We're giving you damages to deter other people, the punitive damages to deter other people from willfully and wantingly disturbing the dead. Love it. Love it. We're not... The don't fuck with the dead payment. I like it. We're not giving you damages because your delicate sensibilities have been harmed. Now, how's that different from the other cases? The other two we looked at, Larson and Meager. Well, those were based off of their mental anguish. They're saying that this one is not so much, that this one is based off of the punitive concept of other people don't fuck with corpses. But, but why could, when the don't fuck with corpses thing was a good grounds for money damages... And both Larson and Meager, why isn't it good grounds here? Fuck. Because they still had access to the body? It was just moved? Because the body wasn't mutilated. Oh my god. At this point in time, in 1931, only in cases where the body had been mutilated could it so offend and cause mental anguish that they could be a measure of damages. It's a distinction because here it's not, they're not saying we're really giving you additional damages for mental anguish here. We're, we're saying you can get some for like the mishandling of the body, but we're not giving you these additional damages for that. We're giving them to you to punish his willful malicious conduct because this body wasn't mutilated. We're not going to uh, give additional damages. We're calling those damages sentimental only. I love it. I love it. So we still got, I like that the law can get around the law. That's always something I appreciate. Right. So so we've still got kind of the meager thing, don't we? Like we've still got that going on where they're finding a reason to give the damages to them. Without saying we're giving it to them because them disturbing the body upsets you so much that you should be entitled to those damages based on being upset by it. 
This is all in building to this uh, law of obscenity. Now, outrageousness. Now, it wasn't just, though, uh, Mr. Katowski who brought a lawsuit. His son did as well. Okay. What do you think? And his son's whole thing was kind of the same. You disturbed my mother's grave and were rude to us. I should get damages for that. What do you think happened to his son's claim? Well, it sounds like the same case, so it gets thrown out? Well, but it's a different plaintiff. The son's an adult himself. Okay. Okay. So what do you think happens to the son's case? Same same claim, same damages, different plaintiff, son of the of the dead woman. Are they going to say his claim isn't as warranted because he's not the spouse? He's just exactly. No, that is exactly what they say. They say, yeah, okay, but no right of yours was disturbed. The right to, to, uh, handle the final disposition of the body. Goes to the next next of kin. The next of kin is the surviving spouse. They have the duty. It was their right. That was a French upon. So they're the only people with standing. To bring okay. a claim against them, you have none. Your case is dismissed. Your father, however, gets two grand. Okay. Well, hopefully, he shared it. Yeah, I'm certain he did. Now let's fast forward. Again, we're 1950 right. now. 1950. We, we're getting closer. Like everyone else in the world from New York, we have gone from 1950 or from 1931 New York to 1950 Florida. There you go. Oh, God, of course we're ending in Florida. Oh, we're not ending. Oh, God. This is Kirksey v. Jernigan. Uh, Supreme Court of Florida citation is 45 Southern Reporter 2D 188. Kirksey has a child. All right. Kirksey's child is accidentally shot and killed at her home when she steps out. He's five years old. Oh. She arrives at the scene immediately upon being told what happened. But prior to her getting there, an undertaker had been called by the police, had picked up the body of her son, took him to there, and without any authorization, embalmed the body. Okay. Okay. She goes to the undertaker's. And says, I want my son's body. I want to send him somewhere else uh, to an undertaker of my choice to arrange for the burial. It's two hours. course of two hours that this happens. All right. All right. The, the undertaker says. I'm in the process of embalming the body. Uh, you can't have The it embalming's yet? done now. Oh. Oh, does he have control of the body now? Is that what he's saying? The Undertaker says, I'm not giving you the body. What reason? Over the next two or three days, more people show up to try to get the Undertaker to give her the body. And the Undertaker says, absolutely not. I'm not giving you the body. Why? Why? Unless... You give me $50 for the embalming. Oh, my God. 
Oh, come on. She pays the $50. She gets her child's body. Okay. Then she sues right. him. Then she fucking sues him. She's, Good. She sues him for the $50 that she paid him. She sues him for punitive damages as well. In the okay. amount of $24,950. Good number. For the wrongful withholding of the body. It's a three-count complaint. All right. The first was, he wrongfully withheld my son's body. The right. second was, he uh, he uh, embalmed my son's body without authorization. Okay. Uh, the third count is, you charged me $50 for an embalming, which is excessive because the usual fee is $25. And you only charged me that because I'm a poor black woman and you know this. That's, oh. It's the South in 1950. Did you not think that was going to come up at some point? I had a hope. I had a hope. Like, oh my God. So, of course, this goes to court. Uh, and the the court then comes in, and this is going to show you this. The court is committed to the rule and reaffirm it that there can be no recovery for mental pain and anguish unconnected with physical injury. Okay. So they're not going to award. What they're getting is something called the impact rule, which was a rule that applied for both intentional and negligent infliction of emotional distress. And basically what it was was you have to be physically injured in order to get pain and anguish. You you have to suffer an actual physical injury. Now, okay. a lot of courts have done away with that now. That's no longer the rule. But at that point, that was the rule. Because now we've moved from we'll recognize this and we'll recognize that to we'll recognize pain and anguish. We'll recognize that. But you have to be the person who is injured. Okay. Okay. All right. But then the court came back and said, but even though that's the rule. <laughs> Yay. Even though that's the rule, we are, we're looking at this now and um, we think that the malice, the willful and wanton and malicious actions that you have taken in embalming this body and holding it hostage for a double fee warrants us to Yay. give damages based on mental pain and anguish because you are interfering with the right in a way that you know is going to cause uh, mental anguish. It actually says interfering with the body is not only the natural and probable consequence of the wrong committed, but is frequently the only injury. I mean, talking about mental anguish there. Okay. Okay, all right, so we're getting there. We're getting to our law. So now we've gone from it can be a measure of damages to, well, it can be a measure of damages if there's a physical injury. It can be a, a way, you know, meager v. Driscoll. It can be a way to increase the actual damages for it. You can take that into account. To, okay, you can take it into account where somebody's mutilated the body to, 
Okay, you can take it into account where they're acting willfully, wantonly, and maliciously to, okay, well, but if the only injury you really suffered, because now you have the body back, if the only real injury you suffered was mental pain and anguish from their wrongful act, you got to be physically injured in some way. We're only going to allow it as a, as a way to tack on additional damages. And now they're saying... You know what? No. <laughs> where, where it's bad, where it is extreme and outrageous. Yay! We're going to allow this to stand as a separate way of recovery. We have now, in some way, gone through just about every single one of the elements we discussed at the beginning. Which takes us back to fucking New York. <laughs> okay. This is Lot v. State in the Court of Claims of New York. Uh, Citation 32 Miscellaneous 2D 296, a 1962 case. This is quite the disturbing road trip. I'm just going to let you know. (laughs) So, uh, how familiar, like you you were adopted, right? Uh, Like, I I hope I'm not like putting it out there for anybody listening. But uh, for those of you who don't know, Alkali was adopted. Um... (laughs) Yes, I was. And you were raised Catholic, weren't you? That is correct, yeah. But you've done those DNA testings, and your heritage, like your genetic heritage, is Jewish, right? Very much so, yes. Okay. So, you understand there's a huge difference between Jewish and Catholic funeral customs, right? Yeah, there's a bit of a a a skew. Like, yeah, you can't remove things from the body, you can't... Yeah, all the all this stuff. If you're Jewish, and the Catholics, not so much. You know, put some fucking makeup on them, shove them in the ground, give them a give them a rosary, oh, yeah. right? Okay, <laughs> so it's 1958. It's New York. A Miss Rose Lot and a, a and a Mrs. Mary Tuminelli are both patients at the Brooklyn State Hospital. Okay. In the course of the same hour, they both die. Okay. They're taken to a shower room. Their bodies are washed. Shrouds are put on them. They are tagged. And both families are notified and asked to have their uh, undertakers come and take the bodies away. All right. The Lot family's undertaker arrives and takes away the body for Rose Lot, a wonderful Jewish woman. That body is taken back to his funeral parlor and prepared in accordance with all of the Orthodox Jewish burial customs. It's washed. The religious rites and prayers are said over it. Uh, The family comes in and views the body. Okay. And that's when they discover that that's not Rose Lott. Of course not. (laughs) So they call the hospital and say, what the fuck? The hospital is told, tells them, why don't you call the Tuminelli's undertaker? Oh. The Tuminelli's undertaker, who has prepared Miss Tuminelli's body, has embalmed it, has put makeup oh, no. on it, has placed it in a coffin with a crucifix and rosary beads, and has begun the rites of the Roman Catholic Church calls the Tuminelli family and says, hey, could you come in here and take a look at your mom's body? Oh, God. The Tuminellis come in, look at the body and say, that is not mom. That's an old Jewish woman. 
Oh, God. The hospital calls both undertakers and says, bring the bodies back here. <laughs> and then oh, exchanges God. the body. All right. So what had happened? Somebody put the toe tag on the wrong fucking toe tag. Yeah, that's I. Yeah, that's what I'm assuming. Oh God. The Lot family now has their body back, but their mother's body has not been prepared in accordance with the Orthodox Jewish faith. Right. Which means she can't be buried in an Orthodox Jewish cemetery. Oh, right. Obviously, this causes great distress to the Lot family. <laughs> I, this is going to get bad. Citing to another Minnesota case, this one called Swarsky v. Simons, the New York court says in this type of action this is 1962 we're not really concerned with the extent of the physical mishandling or injury to the body what we are concerned with is how that improper handling or injury affects the feelings and emotions of the next of kin that's okay. bu- that's building off of that to the, uh, that Minnesota case Swarsky v. Simmons where it said the cause of action is primarily for mental suffering caused by improper dealing with and not injury to the dead body. Now we have a claim that is 100% based on mental suffering and pain. Because everybody's recognizing none of the injuries to the body, the body wasn't destroyed they didn't really uh, interfere and definitely didn't interfere intentionally with the next of right. kin. Yeah, this was this was an error. This was negligence. Right? So it's all about the mental suffering at this point. We're finally there. The road trip is almost at a conclusion. This is a good destination. What do you think happened? Well, I got to assume that the, the hospital was the one who was at error. So did they get to sue the hospital? They sued the hospital and they were awarded $1,000. And this wasn't even intentional. This was negligent. And negligent, as we covered, is you had a duty of care. You violated that duty of care. These people were within the, the group of people that you could foreseeably injure by that violation. An injury was suffered, and that injury was the direct and proximate cause. So what the court said was, this hospital had a duty of care to properly identify these fucking bodies. Yeah. The Obviously, the relatives of them are within that zone of people that they owe that duty of care to, and they violated. And as a result of that violation, these bodies weren't properly prepared in ways that are against the religious beliefs of the family. And that has caused them great mental anguish and suffering. Therefore, we're going to give you damages. So we are not only at intentional infliction now, we are at negligent. Negligent. Yay! Ah, I love this. This is the best puzzle. Which now brings us 
all the way to North Carolina. Hold and see. Okay. This is Parker v. Quinn, Quinn McGowan Company. 138 SE2D214, a 1964 case out of the Supreme Court of North Carolina. <clears throat> so, Miss <laughs> McGowan's uh, husband dies. Okay. He goes to a funeral home. Uh, without their permission, the funeral home embalmed the body to prepare it for burial. Okay. Right. Based off of that, Based off of that, she says, I didn't give them permission to embalm him. They've interfered with my rights and mutilated his body by that way. It has caused me great mental pain and anguish. Therefore, I'm entitled to damages. Remembering everything that we have talked about now, how do you think the court came? It's missing one of them. There's one of those that you definitely told me that I'm, I'm trying to. It's got. Well, let me ask. Well, I, oh, we, we are in 1964 now. We're not in 1868 or 1891 or even 1931. We are in 1964. What is normal okay. to happen when a when a body is received at a funeral home? They probably embalm it right away. Exactly. Is that extreme or outrageous conduct? There it is, extreme or outrageous, okay. Because that's what it's based on. The court came in and said, that's not extreme or outrageous conduct. Yeah, no, we'll agree that his action was intentional. Uh, we'll, we'll even agree that maybe you have had uh, mental pain and anguish. But? But we don't think it's extreme and outrageous in this day and age for an undertaker to embalm the body when it comes into his receipt. And they go back and they mention Mrs. Lott and Mrs. Tuminelli. Remember, the biggest thing in that that caused mental pain and anguish was the mutilation. Which was really the embalming and preparing of the body for the funeral, right? Okay, but now at this time, that's standard practice. Well, this is only two years after that. Oh, wait. Ah. So what changed? Well, Mrs. Parker is bringing her lawsuit against The Undertaker. The Lott and Tuminelli families brought their lawsuit against the Brooklyn State Hospital. So the, the hospital has a more has more that they need to do. The care that is being administered by the hospital is going to be of a higher standard than the care being administered by an undertaker. In fact, based on the Parker court here, they're kind of saying had the Lots and the Tuminellis, which were two cases that they moved into one because the facts were so similar, had those been brought against the undertaker, they probably wouldn't have received anything because embalming is standard practice. And in that case, the the undertaker who thought Mrs. Lott was Mrs. Tuminelli had no reason to believe he had the wrong body. Right. No, so, I agree. So it wouldn't okay. have been negligent. Uh, it wouldn't have been extreme or outrageous. Now, had he looked at that and taken Mrs. Lott's body, been aware that she was Jewish, and done everything... 
then that probably would have done that. But the cause of action was really against the hospital, not the undertaker. They even go in and point out that in Arizona, uh, a woman said, oh, um, the, the body, a woman said uh, the body uh, without authority was embalmed. And she brought a lawsuit because what she said was, I wanted an autopsy first. And you've been okay. my right to have that autopsy. At the end of the day, uh, the court there came back and said, you know, we're we're going to say that uh, that it wasn't wrongful. Because you're not saying it's a wrongful embalming. You're just saying it was done at the wrong time and there's no evidence that it, it did that. Now, North Carolina rejects that. They, they just kind of say, no, we, we think that's, that's too much there. But basically what North Carolina is just saying is uh, we don't think it's malicious. We don't think it's extreme or outrageous here. I love it. We think, okay. We think that really what you uh, what you did was just be pissed off because somebody you didn't want to embalm it embalmed it. Not that it would have really been an issue if it had gone to the funeral home that uh, that you wanted. Which brings us to us putting it all together in our last case. Okay. Gray Brown Service Mortuary versus Lloyd. This is from Alabama, January 15th, 1999. 729. Yeah. 729, Southern Reporter 2D, page 280. <clears throat> Fred Lloyd's wife, Faye, is dead. Now, back in 1990, Fred and Faye entered into an installment sale contract with the Gray Brown Service Mortuary. Uh, they bought a double crypt in their chapel section of their mausoleum that they operate. Uh, they want to be entombed near, near Faye's mother and sister. Uh, they've paid the vast majority of the contract price. Uh, it's a five-year uh, payment plan on it. It says, you know, nobody can be entombed until payment in full has been made for the crypt space. Uh, it all goes down. There's a bunch of contractual stuff here, but some of it is uh, the caskets not to be disturbed. Uh, you know, perpetual care agreement will will consistently care for the grave site, things like that. Okay. Okay. 1991, Faye dies. Uh, unexpectedly okay. dies. Okay. Uh, Fred contacts Chapel Hill Funeral Home. Uh, they do the the embalming. They uh. They do the funeral service. Uh, they they the caskets all given there uh, to them. Uh, it's designed to preserve human remains in an airtight and liquid tight state. All right. Okay. Uh, it's locked. It's sealed. Okay. The keywords here are unless it was damaged uh, while it was being placed in the crypt, the casket should have preserved the remains. All right. Okay. Chapel Hill Funeral Services gives the casket to Gray Brown Service, the the people at the very beginning. All right. Now they're at the very top of the mausoleum. There's five crypts below it. Uh, it's slightly taller, wider, and longer than a casket. All right. Okay. So Gray Brown's employees use a scissor lift. They get the uh, the casket up there, and then because they've got to slide it in to that they throw a handful of bb's into the crypt so that it'll slide in and position better okay they seal it up 
they go away. Jane Hill okay. works for the funeral service. She's in charge of the cemetery. All right. Uh, Franklin McGee, vice president. 1992, a guy named Harlan Williams goes to the crypt because uh, he wants to visit his father who's entombed near there. He calls Miss Hill and says, uh, hey, the mausoleum stinks. All right. Miss Hill oh, says, man. oh, there's a sewage problem. We're getting it fixed. Fall of 92, uh, Harlan Williams calls again, says, Mausoleum still stinks. Hill says the smell was due to a burial in the crypt of somebody who had been discovered after lying dead in their driveway for three days. 1993, <laughs> spring of 1993, so half a year later, Gray Brown Service sends out a guy named Nathan Hall to figure out why the mausoleum stinks. Oh, God. All right. He he follows his nose. He toucan fucking sams it to a crypt near the Lloyd crypt. The like the one right under it. He opens it up and what he sees are some liquids dripping into that empty crypt. Oh. All right. Remember the Lloyds are at the top. This is yeah. right below them and it's dripping in. Oh, so they did have a plumbing problem. Oh, God, it's dripping down the drywall. So they know that the source has to be from above. What do you think they do? They zoom. They fucking seal up that vacant crypt and do nothing else. They actually see a long crack in the bottom of the Lloyd crypt. They don't, they don't do anything with that. Fuck that. You're shitting me. No. 1993. Summer. A Father's Day funeral service stinks so bad in the mausoleum that people have to leave it or hold their nose while gagging to get through it. Oh. Gray Brown goes out to try to find out if they can handle it. They open up the crypt below the crypt that was below the crypt that Faye Lloyd is in and they find more fucking liquid dripping down from on top. Remember, all these crypts except the one at the top are empty. Oh, God. Okay. Because that one on the bottom now was not sealed. The odor gets out. Jane Hill then says, something's wrong. So she decides, I'm going to look into it. All right. And oh God. in the cover of night. Oh, God. She and members of the company, without contacting Mr. Lloyd, without going to the Department of Health for a permit to disinter, go out to the crypt and open Faye Lloyd's crypt. Oh, how bad. She, well, oh, we're not even to how bad yet. Because she actually told the employees that she had received the permission. And then, I shit you not, swore everyone present to secrecy. Oh, that always works out so well. I got permission. Don't tell anybody about this. Oh, my God. They open it up, and it is just a wafting wall of decomposing fumes. Oh. They take it out. They place it in the breezeway. They look at the casket. And what they find are a number of pin-sized rust spots and holes over the entire length of the fucking casket's bottom. Like like it's a fucking strainer. Like it's a fucking pasta strainer. 
Oh, the BBs! The BBs had got eaten through the bottom of the otherwise airtight cas- casket and caused decompo- decomposing fluids to leak out. Oh, that's so bad. That's so disgusting. You, you were not even there yet, man. <laughs> oh, God! Because they go, we got to know how bad the damage is. So they take a fucking hacksaw to the casket lock uh, and pry it open with a crowbar. Uh, and what they find is Phaloid's remains basting in the juices of Faye. Faye or juice. Uh, what do you think they do? I. Uh, Oh, God. If you tell me put it in a hefty bag and reseal up the tomb, oh, I'm no. leaving. No, they're, they're not that bad. They're not that bad. What but they, they don't have access to a swamp? What they have is something called Visceroc. And Visceroc is a very caustic chemical that absorbs fluids and then dries into a plaster-like cast. At which point... Nathan Hall is told by Jane Hill to just start dumping it the fuck in there. They they Han Soloed the corpse? They are throwing huge amounts of caustic chemicals by the cupful into Phaloid's casket all over her face, her chest, and neck. They have damaged the goddamn casket so badly they cannot reseal it. Oh, God. They throw a bunch of Visceroc into the crypt in the pooled fluids. They don't bother cleaning or sealing or repairing the crypt. Oh, my God. And then, how? Do, what, what do you think they do about that casket? The damaged casket? Oh, God, they're putting it back in a crypt, so nothing. Well, how do you think they seal it, though? Don't you think they would have at least given her duct tape, motherfucker, duct tape. They bring out a roll of duct tape and duct tape the casket lid down. Oh, 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 God. They seal the crypt back up. They all go about their way. And then a few days later, Jane Hill goes to her boss, the vice president, and says, oh, by the way, we disinterred a corpse, broke into their casket, threw caustic chemicals in their face, duct taped it closed, and put it back in. You're the vice president of a funeral company. One of your employees tells you this. What the fuck do you do? I don't let them watch the Red Green show anymore. You think maybe you fire the fucking employee and call the family, right? Like, what do you think McGee did? Immediately fired her. Oh, God, promoted her. Did not contact the Lloyd family. Did not contact the Department of Health. Said, yeah, it was probably the BBs drilling a hole in there. And then ordered the casket opened again without permission. Well, at least this time they only needed an X-Acto knife. What the fuck? Looks at the goddamn duct tape casket. Oh, no, no, no. This won't do. This won't do. What do you think he does? Don't just say he got a new casket. He put her in a bag! My hefty bag! It's back! 
McGee goes out, gets a plastic body bag, puts her in there, leaves fluid and tissue in the old casket, puts it in a new casket. <laughs> oh, 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 after, however, before he does that, you know, because face still leaking a little, they dump a bag of Visceroc, that caustic chemical, into the thing. Like, literally, says a few pounds of Visceroc was placed in the body bag with her remains. They do not clean the crypt. They do not seal the uh, seal the crypt. They put the casket back, the new casket with her body bag and the fucking caustic plaster of person and see bodily fluids and tissues of Faye Lloyd. That's that is one of the more disturbing capitalistic things I've heard this week. Well done. Holy shit. What do you think they do with that? The body? Are we talking about the hefty no, bag? No, of no the, hefty, the hefty bag filled with plaster is back in the crypt. We're talking about the casket filled with bodily fluids and... Uh, and t- and basically tissue fucking paper now. This is uh, a mortuary. Do they have a, uh, a cremation center? Did they just burn it? Oh, you're giving them a lot of credit. They did not burn it. I'll tell you that. If you say dumpster. No, they didn't dumpster it. Okay. All right, I'm running out of... Uh, I took it home and made a coffee table out of it. At this point... You ever gone for a nature hike? Yeah. And you know how sometimes you get to a secluded part of the trail where it's near a road and you look down like there'll be a little hill and at the bottom of the hill there's like somebody's old fucking couch and an abandoned car and shit like that. You're fucking with me. They threw it in the fucking woods. Okay. Somebody's hike just got insanely horrifying. They threw it in the fucking woods, and then a few days later came out, picked it up, and buried it in an unmarked spot. Well, I'm glad they came back. And then they called Fred. No, they did call good. After doing all of this, they called Fred. Okay. And they told Fred nothing but the unadulterated truth. Really? Yeah. There there had been a minor problem with a leak in the crypt, and we fixed it. Minor problem. <laughs> that, is, okay. that is the entirety of what they told him. There was a minor problem in the crypt. Uh, just a small leak. We had professionals come out and fix it. All good now. Was, oh, not yeah. to- was not told his wife's crypt had been opened twice. She had been leaking into two other things. They hadn't cleaned it. They just thrown a shit ton of caustic chemicals in there. At one point, duct taped her coffin closed, put her in a hefty bag, stuck her in a new coffin, and threw the old coffin in the woods somewhere. None of that was fucking mentioned. I also like how you said professionals, because that story does not scream professionals at me. Do you know how Mr. Lloyd found out that his wife's crypt had been repeatedly opened and her remains desecrated in this manner. Did the door fall off? Remember Nathan Hall? And remember how Nathan Hall, during the midnight burial, when when his boss was like, all right, 
you're all sworn to secrecy about this. It was like, uh, is something okay? And they're like, no, we got permission. Remember that? Okay, yeah. Did one of them tell him? Nathan fucking Hall told Fred Lloyd, hey, by the way, I don't know what bullshit they're telling you, but here's what really happened. Holy shit. At which point the mortuary fired him. They just fired his ass immediately. Shocking. Fred Lloyd brings a lawsuit suing the Gray Brown Mortuary. And they are they bring claims for the unlawful and warranted interference with the entombed remains of Faye Lloyd, unlawful and illegal disinternment of the remains of Faye Lloyd, wanton willful desecration, injury, invasion, and mutilation of the remains of Faye Lloyd, abuse of a corpse, breach of a contract, suppression, failure to provide perpetual care for the tomb of Faye Lloyd. Um, and the tort of outrage. Yay! Because he made it. Because at this point, it is a fully fledged, separate tort on its own. Oh my God, that's wonderful! And they caught all four of them. You went through all four of them. They're all there. So, before the trial. Uh, they they say, do you want a general damages charge or a specific charge uh, and a general charge to the jury? It's like what you give to the jury, right? Like the verdict forms you give them, all right? Right. Um, and a general verdict form is just basically like, okay, yeah, we find them liable and here's the amount, all right? On everything. We right. find them liable, here's the amount. A, uh, a specific form like a separate verdict form is like uh, one in favor of a defendant, one in favor of the other defendant uh, on that. And then kind of like assessing damages against the defendants. Like uh, yeah, if you're given a specific charge, like I would say, you know, on count one of the complaint, do you find them liable or not liable? If so, how much are they liable for? You know, like delineate all of that. Uh, Chapel Hill, which is the people who did the funeral, and the Mortuary Company, which is the people who desecrate the remains of Faye Lloyd, uh, their lawyers said, uh, you know, we don't, we don't need that. We, we're, we're fine with, like, you know, not delineating who's, uh, who's guilty on what amounts and, and all of that and for what amount goes to each charge. We, we just want the general form. And the judge is like, yeah, let me make this clear. I want this on the record that you are not asking for separate verdict forms with specific amounts for each count of the complaint. I'm like, yeah, no, that's fine. And he's like, okay, d- d- you're sure? Yeah, okay. And then he's like looking at Mr. Lloyd's lawyer. He's like, is that cat fine with you? And... <laughs> And Lloyd's lawyer says, which I can just imagine is the giddiest fucking face he's ever had in his life, is if that's what the defendants want, it's satisfactory with the plaintiff. Which you know that that guy's like, never stop them when they're shooting themselves in the fucking foot. Because now, the jury, there's no way to determine how much the jury has allocated to each charge of the complaint. It's like, we find them liable and a judgment of a million dollars. And no breaking it down. So they don't know what to appeal on. Like, if they think one thing's excessive, they don't know how to appeal that. Okay. All right. All right. So, uh, but they didn't, they did not give uh, Mr. Lloyd uh, two million or a million dollars, though. 
Like Chapel, oh, no. Chapel Hill, the funeral people, they're they're done. They're out. Like the jury says, they did nothing wrong. They they did everything. Any fucking problems that there may be are with this gray brown service mortuary. Uh, but they didn't right. give they didn't give a million dollars. Um, no, no, they gave him two million. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty good. That story's worth two million. That story is definitely worth two million. So Gray Brown Service comes back and says uh, we're the only claim for compensatory damages, which, like I said, is damages you get uh, to be compensated for things. Is an allegation of mental anguish. Which the court, by the way, then comes back and is like, yeah, that wasn't the only compensatory grounds. Like, there were two. Because he also said that that he should be compensated for your breach of contract. Like, it's breach of contract and the mental anguish and the tort of outrage here. Oh, um, my God. But that, that they should apply a strict scrutiny standard and look at it and determine whether or not the award is excessive. Particularly, and you'll love this, particularly where, as in this case... The evidence of mental anguish is relatively scant. The evidence of... Part of Gray Brown's appeal was the $2 million award, which we believe was solely based on mental anguish, is not supported by enough evidence that Mr. Lloyd had mental anguish after hearing all of this. I have mental anguish after hearing all of this. I think he's okay. The very first thing that that the appeals court says is, by the way, uh, you asked for a general verdict form that did not distinguish between compensatory and punitive damages, and we'd award punitive damages, so fuck you right off the bat. <laughs> because you can't even Yay. say how much of this uh, would go to compensatory and how much would go to general damages. When you're doing that, like, there is a point where punitive damages are too fucking excessive. They can only be uh, over a certain amount or a ratio with the compensatory okay. damages. And if they're over that ratio, they're presumed to be excessive damages can be, uh, be reduced. Okay. Okay. Uh, but the court comes back and says, uh, but we don't have to even, even go that far because this is Alabama motherfucker. And this case, in our opinion, supports an award of $2 million in compensatory damages for mental anguish. <laughs> even then, like, we, we think it's enough. And why do we think it's enough? Because we've read the fucking case. We're yeah. looking at the facts. And we're, we've read everything that has happened here. You know, you, you, you knowing in 92 about the owner problem, breaking into her crypt under the cover of night, swearing people present to secrecy. You knew. You knew how fucking outrageous what you were doing were. You did it intentionally. You didn't contact the family specifically because you had to have known it would cause them mental anguish. So what's your defense? That he didn't suffer enough? And yes, that was their fucking defense. That Like, they did not... They did not go in and say it wasn't intentional. They didn't go in and say it wasn't extreme and outrageous. They didn't go in and say it's not the direct and proximate cause of his mental anguish. What they came in and said, he didn't present any evidence of mental suffering. He didn't present I enough evidence of his suffering. Meanwhile, the court, and this is like, I just, I am imagining 
Fred Lloyd uh, as just being like this simple country Alabama farmer because apparently when he was on the stand and uh, he was asked how he felt when he learned of what happened to his wife's remains, he went angry and upset. I told... I told Mr. McGee if I had known the details of what happened to my wife, I would have hurt him. <laughs> like this is this is real testimony too. You know, he, That's he, an awesome testimony. He said uh, he had been miserable since 1991, uh, and that when he found out what had actually happened, it made him more miserable. He testified he had nightmares about his wife's remains being in the hefty bag with a chemical being thrown in her face. Uh, oh. He was concerned as to whether those were even his wife's remains in the crypt anymore. Uh, and that the only reason he hasn't removed them is because she wanted to be buried near her sister and mother and he didn't want to disturb her again. Uh, anytime he thinks of the good memories he had with his wife, he is forced to think about how her body was desecrated. Holy shit. At which point the court said, yeah, no, we think that's enough. We think that's enough to show severe emotional distress and that's the last part because you see it's not just extreme and outrageous is so offensive to everyone like not just offensive to you but just anybody would be would go oh my fuck what the fuck it'd be like this okay so that's that's extreme and outrageous uh, you know, the priest telling the grieving husband, you dumb poles should be happy to be buried anywhere. Uh, this repeated desecration, that's extreme and outrageous. It's not just, I, I'm offended. Right. Anybody, anywhere would be offended by this. Anybody, anywhere would go, what the fuck? I'm not offended. We're all offended. I get it. All right. The next is severe emotional distress. Not just I had hurt feelings. Not just I was upset. There's a case out there where a guy uh, who stuttered was made fun of at work by his boss for stuttering. It very much upset him, but the court said, that's not severe. You were just upset. even, Even if everything else was met, we don't think it was severe. And we don't, we do not compensate for hurt feelings. We compensate for severe emotional distress. And how do you show that? I, I mean, I'm assuming to show it is, is to go and uh, show that you're getting help. I, I... Well, there used to be a rule. And in a minority of states, there still is a rule uh, that said the only way to establish severe emotional distress was by a physical manifestation. A physical manifestation of distress. You could be severely upset, but if it didn't affect you physically in some manner. So until you develop a nervous twitch, you're not getting your compensation. There's a case where somebody uh, developed ulcers, and that was enough. But absent the ulcers, they probably wouldn't have been able to prove severe emotional distress. There was no physical manifestation. Now that has been dispensed with, and now you just basically have to present some evidence that there is a very severe emotional distress. A lot of times, like a, a doctor that has been providing you with counseling, uh, although that's not exactly necessary. So they've gone away from 
in the majority of jurisdictions from saying you have to have a physical manifestation. And now it's just, you got to show that you have been severely emotionally distressed. But if you look at all these cases and you actually go through it, I'll, I'll tell the people for the Patreon, I'm not only going to post these cases uh, on there, because I'm going to. Uh, when I post it this month, I'm going to actually upload all of the cases we discussed tonight. I'm also going to upload two law review articles. Uh, one of which talks about emotional distress and uh, distress damages and how they've evolved. The other one is 107 page is a 107 page article specifically about emotional distress damages for the mishandling of corpses. Holy shit. That goes through cases because you're like, oh, that's weird. Every single fucking state has a body of law about emotional distress damages related to the mishandling of corpses and cases regarding it because it's happened fucking everywhere. That's incredible. It is a 50-state summary. I will put that on the Patreon uh, for the the supporters of the Patreon at all levels. Oh, that's badass. I love it. But you can see from these cases how it developed from, yeah, really, we can just enhance the the real estate interest all the way up to, yeah, no, we're going to give this guy $2 million. (laughs) You have really upset this old man. I like where we ended up. Well done. And and that's the fun part about these cases, because you can trace that evolution of law just through cases regarding dead bodies. That is honestly, dude, that is really cool. This has been one of the coolest episodes that I've got to be a part of. That was an interesting journey. Horrifying. Oh, yeah. It's terrifying. Halloween-style horrifying, but awesome. And that said, that is episode 28, Distress of the Dead. I am your host, the Boozy Badger, Boozy Barrister. If you like what we uh, do here on Boozy's Legal Funhouse, please go to the Patreon at patreon.com slash lawyers and Laker. Feel free to support us that way. Or just uh, go to Apple Podcasts or any podcasting service. Give us five stars. Don't give a shit what you say after it. Just give us five stars. Uh, Alkali, <laughs> where can they find your shit? You can find me streaming Sunday, Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday on Twitch.tv, Alkali and Zanny. That's A-L-K-A-L-I and Zanny, X-A-N-N-I. Thank you so much for including me in this. Well, the next time we won't go for an hour and a half to two hours. I'll have a normal case. But I actually really, for those who don't know, Alkali and I went to a beach house together a couple weeks ago. And I had all this ready while we were at the fucking beach house. And then we got drunk. Um, so. <laughs> no, this was really cool. I'm glad you did a longer one for this. I liked that that journey through the history of a very interesting law. Like that was cool, dude. right? Right. Yeah, you can trace it in there. It's in more areas than that, you know. The, the property rights of dead bodies are in there, which we're actually going to cover that again in another case. Uh, I have another case I want to go over with you that involves not emotional distress, but specifically who owns a dead body. Amazing. I can't wait. Awesome. It's the state. You taught me that. (laughs) Until next time, I am Boozy. This has been Boozy's Legal Fun House. Thank you so much to Alkali and to all of you who are listening. And until next time, you have a wonderful rest of your day. Night, everyone.